Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 28. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 28 will be our sermon text for this morning. Please pray with me before we read together. Let's pray. Our Father, we uh, thank you again for the hope uh, that is set before us, uh, the hope of the, the promised land as we just sang about. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to understand more and more the reality of that hope, but also as we reflect on Hebrews uh, chapter 9, help us to understand the cost of that hope as uh, it was born by Jesus. Uh, teach us now, uh, open our hearts and minds to the truths of your word. Uh, give us humble hearts and humble minds to listen and to be taught by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning with verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established, for a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf." Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters into the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What is your picture of a perfect world? Maybe it's a world without disease, a world without coronavirus, no COVID-19, no stay-at-home orders, no masks, no Zoom meetings. Maybe it's a world without abortion, uh, no slaughter of unborn babies day after day, year after year. Maybe it's a world without racism, 
where black lives matter and there's no prejudice, no disunity, no injustice. Or maybe it's a world where you can just get through the day without changing another dirty diaper or having to answer one more email. We all have different hopes and dreams. Scripture teaches that such a world is possible, but that such a world will ultimately come not through vaccines or legal reform. Scripture is not against such things, right? Don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but they are not our hope. We were talking about this in Sunday school a little bit, about this uh, tension between our actions and our hope. And, you know, we should do research for vaccines, but when we come up with a vaccine for coronavirus, another disease will show up. And we should work for justice, but even when we solve racial tensions in our country, even then, other tensions will arise. Our world does not just have problems. It is broken. And we should fight against the brokenness even as we know that we ourselves cannot fix it. We, we might mitigate it for a time. We might push back the darkness for a time. And we should strive for that. But we cannot completely dispel the darkness. Only the rising of the sun can do that. And so we work, but we do not hope in our work. Our hope must be somewhere else. The book of Hebrews is actually about hope. And our passage this morning is about hope, though you won't find that word in our text. But almost everything the writer says in the book of Hebrews, he says to engender confident hope. You see, he wants us to have the full assurance of hope until the end. He says in Hebrews 6.11, and he points us to God's promise and oath that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us, Hebrews 6.18. And he defines faith as the certainty of the things for which we hope. See, the writer wants us to have hope, and to that end, he points us not to ourselves, not to our politicians, not to our scientists or our doctors, but he points us to Jesus. Now, again, don't misunderstand. Those things aren't bad, but neither are they our hope. Our hope is in Jesus. And this morning, we're going to look at one particular aspect of the work of Jesus, one particular aspect of the work of Christ, Christ as our Redeemer. And we're going to ask three questions, three simple questions. Christ redeemed us. Why, how, and to what end? Why, how, and to what end? So first, Christ redeemed us. Why? To redeem is to purchase the release of someone. It's to, it's to buy back. It's to purchase freedom. Uh, which brings us to the question, right? Do we, do we even need redemption? And what do we need redemption from? Uh, some would say uh, you don't need redemption at all, right? Life is good. You're, you're fine the way you are. We have all the freedom we could ask for in our country. Just enjoy life. And others would say, no, we, we, we do need redemption. Uh, we need freedom from unjust laws or from oppression. And of course, Scripture would affirm, right, that there are real injustices in the world. Uh, when God brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt, it signified both the reality of such injustice and its ultimate end. Because if God is against it, it will not long stand. Uh, but this is not the redemption that Scripture 
talks about. We need redemption because we are not okay. It's not first and foremost redemption from external evil, right? However real that may be, and we'll get there. But first and foremost, we need redemption, not from the evil without, but from the evil within. Not the evil out there, but the evil in here. See, my, pig my biggest problem is not your sin. It's mine. Why did Christ redeem us? Verse 22 calls it the forgiveness of sins. Verse 26 says his, his work was to put away sin. Verse 15 says Christ has redeemed us from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You know, sometimes sin can be kind of a slippery concept, right? Sometimes it seems that people call whatever they personally don't like sin. And so understanding what is and what is not sin becomes kind of a moving target. And yet, by, by calling it transgression and linking it to the covenant, our writer narrows in on something objective. The problem is we have transgressed a covenant, a law. We have gone outside a given boundary. And that law, the law of God, condemns us. We need freedom from the law's condemnation. Or put differently, uh, we need freedom from the law's curse. See, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, uh, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. See, if you do not live up to God's standard, God's standard will judge you. You come under a curse. Now, you might think, okay, well, why does God have to be so strict? I mean, doesn't, doesn't he allow wiggle room, at least a little bit of wiggle room? One writer says, uh, even in ordinary life, in many instances, there is no room for the least deviation from the law or the rules of a game. Officials in a football game do not allow for just a little bit of being offsides. Rather, the least infraction is penalized. Or consider a bank, right? How could it tolerate just a little bit of embezzlement by each of its tellers? Or what about you, right? What would you say about a judge who allowed wiggle room for a little bit of child molestation or a little bit of murder or a little bit of rape? You would say, no, 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 by no means, right? Such a judge should be thrown off the bench. You see, we get that there are some laws for which you do not give an inch. The problem is we want to pick and choose which are those laws according to our own propensities. But God is the just judge of all the earth. He is no respecter of persons. And anyone and everyone who has failed to live up to his law is under a curse. And yet, and yet God, the same God who, because of his justice, sentences us to death, loves us. Scripture says, yes, he, he, he loves us. And, and so verse 24 says, Christ has entered into heaven now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. See, why, why did Christ do what he did? He did it on our behalf. That is, he did it for us. Christ did not do his work for his own sake. He, he didn't get anything out of it. God the Son was perfectly happy from all eternity he did not need to redeem us for his sake. He did his work on our behalf, for our sake. God the Father sent his son, not because he needed something, but because we needed something, freedom from sin's curse. 
See, this just judge is also our merciful Father. And so Paul goes on in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This really brings us to our next point. Christ redeemed us. Why? To put away sin, to, to free us from sin's curse, to reconcile us to the Father's justice. Second, Christ redeemed us how? Christ redeemed us from the, the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The next question is, well, how? How does he do that? Or, or what was the cost of that redemption? You know, sometimes people hear about God's law. They, they hear about his justice, his righteousness, his holiness. And at first they think, uh, well, I haven't been so bad. I mean, maybe God will just let me slip by. But we've just said that the least infraction comes under condemnation. One must keep the whole law, not bits here and there. And so the next logical question is, okay, well, well fine. Then what do I do now? Our natural inclination is to answer, well, uh, uh, try harder, uh, do more, be better, get, get religion. We turn to our accomplishments, whatever we can do to try to prove that, that we're okay. Those may be moral accomplishments, they may be religious accomplishments, or even legal or vocational or cultural, right? It doesn't matter. We, we seek to do something, something that justifies our existence, something that proves that we're okay. And sometimes in, in the flurry of activity, we can, we can quiet our accusing voice for a time. And yet more often than not, we know better, right? Deep down, we say to ourselves, it's, it's not enough, right? I need to do more. I need to do more. I need to do it again. I, I, I failed. I've fallen short. I, and sometimes I might as well give up. Right? Sometimes we fall so low, we say, I know I'm a loser, right? Someday everybody else will realize it too. We live with this kind of low-grade spiritual depression, just despairing of ever living with a clean conscience, wallowing in guilt and self-pity. You see, even when we think uh, we can redeem ourselves, we can prove to the world that we're better, even when we can convince ourselves that the cost of our redemption is just work a little harder, do a little better, try a little more, even then we know better. You know, hand sanitizer, right, may be great for killing 99.99% of germs, but we know that moral math is a little bit different. Uh, James says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. And I think it was Donald Gray Barnhouse who used to say that the strongest chain fails if even one link is broken. And so even when we do a little better, we know we have fallen way short. A theological way of, of putting this is summed up in Paul's words that through the works of the law, no one will be justified. And the Psalms put it this way, no one can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. The price is just too high and we don't have what it takes. We can't bribe God into letting us off the hook. We can't pay him back enough to right our wrongs. If I was to start right now always doing what God requires, if that were possible, I'd still live with this nagging feeling, it's just not enough. And so we must look for redemption elsewhere. The majority of our text, of course, is, is about the necessity of the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. Our writer starts with an illustration. He says in verses 16 and 17, consider a will, uh, right? a last will and testament. And, and we all know in general at least how a will works. right? Wills don't take effect until the one who wrote the will dies. Only at death is the inheritance dispersed. And the illustration works because the word for will and the word for covenant in Greek are actually the same word. And so he's saying death has this legal function. 
And while it may be horrible for the one who dies, it can actually be a blessing to others. They receive their inheritance at the cost of another's life. And so it is with Jesus, right? We receive the inheritance at the cost of his life. Now, the writer doesn't dwell on this illustration. He quickly moves on to the pattern that's set down in the Old Covenant in verses 18 through 24. He says, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. You see, ancient covenants, they were a little bit different from wills. Uh, when two people made a covenant, neither of the parties had, had to die to ratify the covenant. At least neither had to die themselves. Something did have to die. And that animal represented the one making the covenant. Uh, in ancient Near Eastern covenants, uh, the, the, the minor party would, would slaughter an animal, cut it in two, walk between the halves, and it was a way of saying, if I break my part of this deal, may I become like this dead animal. It was an oath, right? It was a promise. And the animal represented the covenant party who broke the covenant. In Genesis 15, God took upon himself this oath. And so Jesus comes to make good on God's oath, to accept the curse on our behalf. And yet Hebrews brings out not only the inaugurating function of the blood in verses 19 to 20, but also the purifying aspect in verses 21 to 24. Uh, you see, the people of Israel keep sinning. Uh, they, they kept forfeiting their life, as it were, and so God provided sacrifices to ritually, though not actually, remove their sin. So they might continue to draw near to Him in the temple. You see, the biggest problem with sin and its, its guilt is that it hinders communion with God. It would be like an axe murderer wanting to join the chief justice for dinner in a movie. It just doesn't work. Sin hinders communion with God. In Israel, because communion was through the ceremonial law, everything was ritually purified by the shedding of blood. The blood showed that the sin, the uncleanness, had been dealt with. The crime had been punished. The debt had been paid. Communion was restored. This is why verse 22 says, "...without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins." You see, sin brings guilt, and guilt brings condemnation, and condemnation brings death, and death is symbolically and, and literally realized in the shedding of blood. But the blood of bulls and goats only ritually and ceremonially dealt with sin. They restored ritual communion with God in the tabernacle. But Hebrews will go on to say in chapter 10, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Ritual uncleanness is dealt with, but actual uncleanness, that of our soul, remained. And yet Hebrews is talking about not ritual things, but heavenly realities. Hebrews is talking about the true temple made without hands, where God dwells not by name, but in person. And it was necessary, verse 23 tells us, for the heavenly things to be purified with better sacrifices. And so after his resurrection, Christ entered into the holy places made without hands, which were not mere copies of the heavenly, but into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And he brought his blood, the, the blood of bulls and goats, as verse 12 says. That's not what Jesus brings. He, he brings his own blood. And this is important because the blood of Christ can do what the blood of bulls and goats cannot. Now, why would that be? What, what difference does it make? Well, first, because he's a human being, and so he can die in the place of human beings. As, as much as we're all for animal rights in our culture, we still recognize, I think, that there's something infinitely more valuable about a human life. Christ came as a man to die for men. Second, because he is God, right? As, as value as an individual human life is, even if one man were perfect and 
could suffer the infinite curse of God. He could still only die for one man, one man for one man. But no mere man is perfect. That's pretty obvious. And no mere man can suffer the fullness of the penalty for sin. So God comes. God himself in the flesh. God the Son, who is infinite in his person, who takes on a human nature, that in that nature he might suffer and die, bearing our sin, taking our curse, satisfying the justice of the Father. See, this is, this is so much better than wiggle room. This is better than second chances. You know, if God gave me a second chance, I'd screw that up too. But God doesn't just give us second chances. He does something better. He satisfies justice on our behalf through the death of his Son. That is, that's not a second chance. That's grace. This is mercy for sinners. This is the love of our Father. Now, you might wonder, well, well couldn't, couldn't there have been another way, right? I mean, that, that someone had to die in my place for me to be right with God. I mean, that seems so barbaric. Well, let me just say a few quick things, right? One, it shows us, actually, the purity and the justice of God, who demands to punish sin even at the cost of his Son. Two, it shows us the weight of our sin, right? That, 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 that our sin should lead to such a punishment, Three, it shows us the wisdom of God, right? Who, who marries justice and mercy at the cross. Justice for himself, but mercy to us. And finally, it shows us the love of God, right? That he should send his son in our place, that Jesus should come willingly to die for us, to suffer for us, that we might be redeemed. If there was any other way, right? Any other way to satisfy justice and show mercy, God would have done that. And Jesus prayed it in the garden, right? The, the night before his crucifixion, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And the cup was the cup of God's wrath that he was about to drink. It was the fullness of God's anger for sin that Jesus was about to face. Again, he prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now remember, this is the, the father who was well pleased with his son. He loved his son. He delighted in his son. If there was any other way to satisfy justice and to show mercy to sinners, surely God would have heard the prayers of his son and answered the prayers of his son by, by doing that other thing. But Jesus himself said it was necessary that the Christ should suffer these things. And notice one last thing under this point. This all took place once for all, verses 25 to 26. Uh, the, the repeated sacrifices of bulls and goats could never take away sins, no matter how much blood was spilled, no matter how many animals were slaughtered. But this single momentary sacrifice of Jesus was sufficient. He was the God-man. Otherwise, the writer says, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, right? Suffering again and again for the sins of God's people. But Christ suffered once for all, at the end of the ages to put away sin. As Paul put it in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Which really brings us then to our final point. Christ redeemed us, why? To put away sin. How? By the sacrifice of himself, the shedding of his blood for the satisfying of the Father's justice. And then finally, Christ redeemed us to what end? We, we finally come uh, most directly to the hope itself. 
You know, some people have a kind of naive hope in life, right? It's the don't worry, be happy kind of hope, right? Don't worry, it will all get better. Don't worry, it will all be over soon. And, and you, you sometimes, right, the more cynical among us at least want to say, really? Do you know that, right? How do you know it will all be over soon? And yes, history shows a certain ebb and flow, but we should not be so naive as to expect it as if it were our due. We don't know where things are going in life. Others think that if you want things to be better, well, you've got to make it happen. You've got to demand things get better. You've got to demand they go your way. Don't stop fighting until it happens, right? And, and I, I don't criticize that view in as much as there are times. Even the Apostle Paul himself called on his rights as a Roman citizen. But there is a criticism for both of these views, and it is this, not, not that they are wrong in themselves, but that they don't go far enough. They naively hope for or aggressively demand that this world get better. And yet the Christian message promises so much more. The Christian message is no matter how great you can imagine this world might be, it will be better than you can imagine. And that for at least two reasons. I mean, one, our desires, even for what is good are, are tainted with sin so that we imagine wrongly. Our, our picture of justice is always a little off. Our understanding of pleasure is broken. And yet, too, our, imag our imaginations are not strong enough. We imagine weakly. Our, our dreams are not big enough. We, we want a world that is a little better. God wants to make all things new. So no matter how great you imagine the world could be or might be, it will be better. Our writer talks about the end of Christ's work or the goal of Christ's work in the first and the last verses of our text. Verse 15, he says, Therefore, he, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And then in verse 28, he says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. See, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, Paul said in Galatians, that we might receive adoption as sons, that we might have an inheritance. Sons gain a right to an inheritance. Now, that is, by the way, uh, even you ladies who are in Christ, in biblical terminology, are sons. And, and the point is not to disparage being daughters, actually just the opposite. In, in that culture, it was the sons who received the inheritance. And so to call women sons is to say that women in Christ have equal standing with the men. They too have a right to the inheritance. We are all sons, and therefore we have a right to the inheritance of the Father. And what can we say about that inheritance? Uh, briefly, we can, we can say three things. It's promised, it's eternal, and it comes to those who eagerly wait. First, it's promised. God has promised an inheritance to his children. God promised it to Abraham. He promised him a home. He promised it to Israel, a land flowing with milk and honey. Jesus promised it to his people. He said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. God promises it in Revelation 21 a new heaven and a new earth with God dwelling in our midst with no more tears, no more death, no mourning, no crying, no pain because God is going to make all things new. And God has promised that He will make all things new. This is the inheritance held out to God's people. Not, not this life a little better. Not this life a little improved. Not a, not a little less sorrow and a few less tears but every tear wiped away because all things are made new and death itself is no more. 
Second, this inheritance is not only promised, but it's eternal. That is, it partakes of the life to come. It's not something here today, but gone tomorrow. It's, it's not like you know, your new house, which suddenly has a leaky roof. It's not like your new car, which eventually breaks down. It's not like your body, which was once so strong, but every day feels a little less so. The inheritance partakes of eternity, all things new forever. And third, this inheritance comes to those who wait. Verse 28 says, Christ will come back to save those who eagerly wait for him. Not, not who wait for the inheritance, interestingly enough, right? But who wait for him. As, as glorious as that new creation will be, there will be nothing more glorious than coming face to face with Jesus. Like, like the Levites in the Old Covenant, the Lord himself is our inheritance, and as we wait for him and long for him and give our hearts to him, we can know with confidence that Jesus will return to bring us into that inheritance, to be with him forever. He said he would rise from the dead. He rose from the dead. He said he will return. He will return. And Jesus testifies to this. And, and when he says in Revelation 21, sure, 22, surely I am coming soon. And we respond, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Have you set your heart on him? He, he is coming, right? He, he will make all things new. He will deliver his people not only from the troubles of this present age, but from the wrath to come. And he can do so because he has shed his blood for sin. He took that wrath on the cross and then rose victorious from the grave so that we too might experience newness of life and hope in the resurrection to come. And so hold fast to the hope set before you, looking to Jesus who has gone before us, who has risen from the dead and entered into God's presence, giving us full assurance of hope that we too will enter in. And then yes, go, go, go and do what you can to make this world better. Not because your hope is in this world, but to bear witness to the world that is coming, which Christ will bring in his return. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would give us such a clear sight of Jesus and his redeeming work, his shed blood on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension to your right hand, that we would see and understand his work so clearly, that he will return, that he will return to save those who wait for him. Give us such a clear sight of that work that we have hope, hope in the world to come, hope in what Christ has done and will do, and a hope that animates us in the present to live for you, to serve you by serving others so that we might give people a glimpse, a picture of what is coming, that they too might come to have that hope as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.